Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at Seven Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that is freely available to everyone. Listeners, today I am very excited to introduce Lawrence Hamptill. Hamptill is a 16-year veteran of the financial services industry, and in 2008, he co-founded his own registered investment advisory, the Fortune Financial Advisors which serves clients in the U.S. and Europe. He is one of the most entertaining and informative follows on Fintwit and can be found at L. Hamtil, L-H-A-M-T-I-L, where you can find him posting about everything from his problem child stocks to his workout routines. He is an avid gym rat, but even more impressive, he never skips leg day. He blogs semi-regularly at fortunefinancialadvisors.com. Lawrence, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Uh, happy to have you. Happy to have you. Uh, Lawrence, I think the first time we crossed paths um, online uh, was because of your work and research on the valuations of global stock markets compared to the U.S. And like just for a little context, a, a lot of investors will like to point out that global stocks uh, might be cheaper than U.S. stocks like for a number of years now. And as an argument, um, like as an argument that maybe like U.S. stocks are overvalued. And until your research, that argument never sat well with me, but I could never really place my finger on why. So would, would you like to explain maybe why there's more to it than just comparing valuation metrics across different countries' stock markets? Sure. Uh, I, I think what, what the mistake most people do is they look at aggregate level or index level data and they say, okay, well, the S&P is at 22 times forward earnings and MSCIEM is at 16 or 17 and Europe's at 12 or, or whatever the case may be. And so therefore I should go rotate out of the US and buy these optically cheaper markets. And the reality is what you're looking at is at least at the index level is a different mix of, of sectors, which an aggregate sort of cloud the the level of, of cheapness or expensiveness in the underlying companies. And a, a good example is, is uh, emerging markets. So historically, that's been uh, sort of a moving target over time. Uh, if you look, I guess, maybe 30 years ago or so, it was Malaysia and Indonesia and, and, and some of these places in Southeast Asia. And, and now it's 40% China. So you want to be aware that um, historical data, number one, is going to be subject to change, and you're not necessarily buying into uh, what you thought you might be, especially when looking at uh, historical data for the index. And, and then number two, over time, the sector shift has, has changed. Uh, what you look at in many foreign markets is that they're simply not as deep as the U.S. market. So, in the U.S., you have publicly traded companies in just about every industry from uh, auto retailers and, and scrap iron to consumer staples and technology. And a lot of these emerging markets, they're, they're heavily concentrated in what I call static industries that, that um, you know, uh, whether it's energy or financials, things like that, that, that can't be headquartered somewhere else, so to speak. And, and so those are typically going to be a lot cheaper than say a, a globalized uh, tech company or healthcare company or consumer staples company. In the current iteration of MSCIEM, you have, uh, as I mentioned, a big China weight and you do have a big technology bet now with, with those big tech companies out of China and so forth. 
So the argument is not as clear cut as it used to be that in the U.S. you're you should be willing to pay more because you're primarily betting on tech and consumer discretionary and these things and and have a, a lower weighting to cyclical financials and so forth. But you also want to be aware that you look at these valuations and how much would you be willing to pay to have 40% of your money in a, a communist country like China, where shareholder rights are, you know, not necessarily what they would be, and there's some liquidity issues and all those sorts of things. And, and then I guess the second issue with, with comparing valuations is uh, foreign stocks might be cheaper, but if the USD is still strong, uh, foreign stocks are going to have a hard time for USD investors outperforming the US, if that makes sense. So in other words, uh, you can have a, a European stock or a emerging market stock that's doing really well in local terms, but if the USD is strong, uh, the, that stock's gonna have a hard time outperforming its American peer. So that's the currency issue is what a lot of people overlook. To some extent, currency hedging can alleviate this, but, but then I often wonder, what's the benefit then? Because, you know, I want a diversified portfolio. And if I, I hedge the currency, well, then I effectively have something similar to 100% US stock portfolio. So it's just not as simple as, as what some people may be led to believe, just looking at the aggregate level index and just saying, okay, well, I want to buy what's cheaper. Sure. So like, basically, like you, you have some giant tech companies in China, which were, I think most listeners will be familiar with like Alibaba or JD.com or, or Baidu, you get a 10 cent, obviously you have those like huge tech companies in China where shareholder rights are not what are, are less than desirable, let's say. Right. And uh, you know, in a lot of other countries, you basically, you have financials and some big energy companies and some mining companies, and it's just not the same. The sector allocations can look very different, I guess. Exactly. That, right. Yeah. What's, what's sort of funny, I did a post on this a couple of years ago, and it was kind of like how immigration impacts stock markets. And I think Russia is kind of a good example. It's a emerging market economy. But a lot of the uh, intelligentsia, so to speak, from Russia went to the US and Israel and founded a lot of tech companies. So the intellectual capital migrated out of Russia and, and started these companies elsewhere. But what was left in Russia were the companies that I said that are sort of static that can't couldn't be transported outside the borders like energy and financials and so forth. And more often than not, that's what you get with emerging market bets is these these static companies that that you're really making a bet on the local economy, the local currency and so forth. You don't have as much global exposure for the most part. So would you say do you think how would you recommend, or I don't know if, if that's the best way to word it, but like, do you think most U.S. investors have enough international exposure or do they need more international exposure? <laughs> well, I might be a little bit of, a, you know, uh, an outlier in my views on this. I, I think if you look at what what's MSCI world is maybe 55% U.S., 45% foreign, something like that. So a lot of people benchmark to the global portfolio and that maybe suggest that they should have almost half of their their allocation in foreign. Most of my research shows that, um, well, at least for the last 30 years or so, the global portfolio hasn't added any benefit, not just in absolute terms, but in risk-adjusted terms as well. I think 
you know, the sharp ratio or risk adjusted return metric has, has been higher for the US only portfolio for a long time. And, and uh, that's a function of several things, the higher quality companies and, and for the most part in the US and uh, currency has been strong and, and things like that. I, I'm not opposed to foreign investing, but I prefer to do it in a, a little more niche way, which is I, I look at the global opportunity set and I look at it by sector. And I think, for example, uh, Nestle is a very fine company in consumer staples. It's arguably better than most of its U.S. peers in the consumer staples space. Uh, you know, they do business in uh, what 150 countries and, and things like that. So, you know, that's that's a foreign stock I'm willing to own, and we do own. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then you've got uh, opportunities in healthcare and things like that. Where I am less enthusiastic would be on things like financials and utilities, um, the, uh, some resource companies. You know, I, I just get the sense that if I'm going to be in those industries and in aggregate, some macro forces are going to affect uh, mining companies, for example, the world over. Um, you know, they're all subject to the prices of iron ore and things like that. I, I might be better off with an American company where I'm uh, happy or at least more confident with the accounting standards, uh, shareholder rights, those sorts of things. So really it's, it's kind of building a global portfolio with, but with your best ideas in each industry or each sector with, based on what exposures you want to have. Sure. Sure. So uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, so like more recently, I've been running across your bull case for the U S defense industry and, you know, with, with valuations getting a little more stretched in, uh, some sexier names, uh, you know, you, you've got to my attention. Wh- why did defense companies make for good investments? Well, the, the, <laughs> I guess for a couple of reasons and, and historically they've, they've never really been in kind of like a, what you might consider a bubble. So they're very rarely excessively valued. Uh, there might be a few explanations for that. Some people object to owning weapons. Uh, on the other hand, some people uh, are, are worried about government uh, defense spending, although both parties seem to have a, a historical tendency to, to spend money on it. Uh, very significant jobs contributors to local economies. And it's a skilled workforce that you want to keep employed because you never know when you're going to have an emergency. So historically, the, the government has sort of treated these in a socialistic way, trying to keep this uh, resource really is what it is uh, of intellectual capital and, and human capital that, that knows how to build these complex machines and systems, keep them busy, keep them uh, uh, sharp, so to speak. Um, the, just having the government as your primary customer scares away a lot of people. It, it really limits the growth opportunity set. But in reality, these companies have tended to trade a lot like consumer staples. There's a high degree of quality, uh, a much lower degree of volatility. Um, as a, a friend of mine once said, who, who is a subcontractor for government parts, he said the government always pays its bills. They have unlimited resources. Um, and, and then the industry has gone through a large uh, period of consolidation in the 90s after the Cold War. Uh, it's very oligopolistic. Um, I just think there's a lot to like about it. They've become very shareholder friendly. They generate a lot of free cash flow. And it's for the long term, I think these companies are going to continue to do that. I mean, you know, for sure, 
that there's very little chance, probably no chance, that the government's ever going to ask a foreign company to compete for a weapons contract. I mean, it's a natural national security risk. You don't have to worry about a, a Chinese company, for example, coming in and taking market share from you. Um, so all of these things sort of create these almost impenetrable moats for these incumbent companies. And the weapons are so complex, they take years, if not decades, to sort of plan and, and uh, initiate the projects and, and see them through. Um, and oftentimes the government will just approach these companies and say, here's what we want, build it for us. So it, it's, it's, you're going to go through your periods in the desert like, like a lot of um, unsexy industries. But for the long-term investors, there's a, a huge track record of wealth creation and the names for those who are patient enough to kind of sit out the periods where they're out of favor. Yeah, they, they really seem to enjoy like some unique economic modes, right? I mean, like, uh, I mean, you pointed out a lot of them, but like the U.S. government, like you said, they're not going to go to, uh, you know, a European country or, you know, much less anywhere else to really like look for like their new like fighter jets for the air force exactly or for the right army. um and so there's limited competition and then also like the employee base of these companies right don't they have to like go through security clearances and things like that exactly. I mean, like, can can you walk us through like some of these like uh I, I mean i know you already touched on some of them but like walk us through some of the just the economic moats this industry enjoys yeah so you, you touched on one which is the the workforce these are highly skilled laborers they're working on highly classified um, projects. Uh, you know, if you read the book Skunk Works, which is just uh, kind of a fascinating inside history of Lockheed Martin and how they developed the stealth fighter and the SR-71, you get a sense for, for just how um, tight-lipped these companies are with, and how they have to be with their employees. And they, they want to keep these guys busy because they are a precious resource for the for the defense um, industry and, and also for the government. Now, some things are transitioning into space and so forth. And, and oftentimes for investors, it can be frustrating because these companies, they're not even allowed to give details on some of the projects that they're spending hundreds of millions and maybe billions of dollars on because you know it's a national secret. Right. So that can be one thing that, that turns people away. But again, it sort of adds to your your moat that these, these, it just tells you that these companies are doing things that it's very hard to compete with. And I think the data show that uh, I don't know however many tens of thousands of smaller companies uh, just gave up after the cold war, trying to get in on, on the defense spending uh, and they just folded up and, and the industry has consolidated. So there's a lot of power with these incumbent companies and, I just, I have every reason to believe that's going to continue. It may not be exactly in its current state. You know, it might not be huge bomber formations or, you know, fleets of fighter jets or Abrams tanks or whatever, but whether it's missiles, satellite technology, all these sorts of things, uh, drones, um, I, I do believe that the oligopolistic nature is going to persist just because these weapons are so expensive uh, you know, it's not like World War II, you're going to be building 50,000 Sherman tanks. So, you know, all of these unique things sort of play to the advantage of these companies. Is there an argument to be made, uh, you know, like that there might be like a next age of defense companies coming up, like, say, Palantir, for instance, like, are, are these companies 
should they be thought of more as like uh like traditional software names and traditional like software platforms or should they be like do they enjoy like and maybe not just palantir but other like cybersecurity names that might win large government contracts like is there an argument to be made they might enjoy some of these advantages too in the future yeah, I'm not as not as familiar with those. Uh, I, I do think, though, that there is an argument for that. And of course, it ultimately depends on on how the government treats them and, and how they, uh, you know, do business with them going forward. And obviously, they're they're going to the government tends to play favorites. And and then it's it's kind of like you know the U.S. government in, what <laughs> yeah exactly right what? exactly no, so every you know, contract's fair buddy <laughs> yeah right so you know once you once you get in there though it's kind of right. like how do you how do you get out of that relationship and maybe you can't and, and I think uh, I think Booz Allen Hamilton is another example right of a contractor that does a lot of work for, not just for defense but for the government as a whole. Um, you know, the, the, it is an interesting part of that's coming up and, and it's not exactly the same dynamics as, as weapons and so forth. But I do think you have a good point that they could be the next generation that, that sort of shares a lot of these things with the, uh, the, the defense primes like Lockheed and Northrop and so forth. Sure, sure, sure. Um, what about like, I mean, have you followed like the, the Jedi contract, which, you know, Microsoft won and then Amazon's contesting it. Like, uh, like uh, how much uh, will like the, if, if whoever ultimately wins that and, you know, I'm not to say it'll be Microsoft or Amazon. I mean, it's a new administration. I have literally no idea, but like, will that help the Like, you think the way the government contracts work and, and sales work, like that'll help like that company win a lot more uh, future contracts with the government. That would, that's what you'd think, you know, although, like I said, the, the government likes to practice socialism. So they, and, and often my understanding is in that space, they want to keep a, a healthy enough competition. So they'll probably allow one company to win one contract and then the next company to win another, as long as there's, you know, um, not totally significant differences that would, you know, lead you to one way or another it seems like the government likes to spread the wealth around a little bit and sure. um, but that's i mean it's it's kind of like they want to keep all the piggies fed so to speak so right. I, I don't i don't think that that's a bull or bear case for one or the other i think it's a bull case for the group of companies if that makes sense you know no absolutely absolutely so speaking of microsoft and amazon you know we were recently uh dming which kind of like the catalyst for this uh catalyst for this podcast uh conversation but like uh what we were talking about big tech a little bit like um and you, you even tweeted this morning out uh that you know like like facebook <laughs> facebook investors uh complaining about like its valuation and how it might not be fair and this struck a little close to home i'll admit uh <laughs> might like reminded you of uh like your your um uh, tobacco stock shareholders like consistent uh, for years have been arguing that that valuation is too low. So like, I mean, do you think big tech, is it overvalued? Do you think it's a bubble? Like how do you look at those big tech names? Well, we, you know, our clients and I think I myself personally own a lot of these names. So I just don't tend to talk as much about them primarily because uh, everybody talks about them or it seems like it. 
um, Google and Facebook. I mean, I think Facebook's probably one of the the cheaper of the big big tech names. Google is was recently, well, until recently, was looked pretty cheap. I think since it's run up lately, it's gotten a little more expensive. Although I think it's still reasonable. Uh, Microsoft as well, although I'd probably consider that closer to fairly valued. Um, of all those names, Apple's the one that is the most puzzling to me. Uh, depends on what you think the future of the company is, right? I mean, sure. if I'm not mistaken, it's something like 80% of the revenues are still hardware. Um, there's some people argue that, and, and the multiple has, what, effectively doubled or so over the past 12 months. So almost all of the the shareholder creation has just come from multiple expansion, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what was it? A, a low teens to mid teens multiple for much of the last decade, you know, it was a very cheap stock, especially on an X cash basis. Um, you know, it's, I know there's a popular argument that it's a consumer staple stock or a utility or something like that. I, I just don't find that a compelling argument. Um, how often do you change your phone? Uh, it's every few years, something like that. It's not, it's not like the Nestle, Nestle chocolate or the General Mills cereal in your cupboard. Um, it's a fine company, uh, high returns on invested capital and, uh, a lot of shareholder friendly policies. They've, they've, they're very well run, but in the, it, it just remains to be seen whether they can, pivot to a more recurring revenue basis and, and get away from purely hardware. The whole thing about the uh, going into the automotive business sort of, sort of scares me. I, I don't know if they can do that or even if it's worthwhile for them to do it. This is a whole, maybe this is a topic for a future conversation, but I've recently been sort of fascinated by companies that reach a certain point and then they have to shrink in order to grow again. And I have to wonder if, if some of these big tech companies, if maybe that's not a recipe for success going forward. I mean, they've gotten to be so big. They've got their, they've got their fingers in a lot of different operations. And, and I don't know um, exactly would they be better off with a little more focus. Uh, maybe shareholders don't want to, they want to own some of those businesses, but not the whole thing in aggregate. Um, you know, and I don't know, it, it just seems like something that's going to be relevant to this particular group of companies in the future. That's, that's an interesting thought. And it's going to take this conversation, like a place I wasn't really anticipating, but like, you would also think too, it would, a, a lot of that would get the government off their backs, which might be like their biggest impediment right now. Like all of them, like face certain, uh, like you see future risks there with like government regulation or antitrust concerns or whatever it is. And, that, uh, you know, if, if they were to, as you said, like spin off maybe certain divisions or things like that, right. You lose some synergies, but, but if it, if it just to alleviate that problem or potential problem to let the valuations grow a little bit, you wonder if it would create some shareholder value. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, um, uh, I've recently uh, recently been reading a lot about railroads, for example, and it's just kind of interesting how they took the approach of uh, doing away with with low profitability lines and, and really focusing on uh, just doing a couple of things really well. 
and uh, that was the recipe for success in what was a very troubled industry. These companies aren't troubled by any means. I'm not meaning to suggest that, but just the concept of, um, you know, you got to this point by doing a lot of things well and being smart capital allocators, acquiring these platforms, especially in social media. And, um, you know, the valuations for the most part don't reflect a lot of trouble on the mind of investors, but uh, I just have a suspicion that the next decade is going to look a lot different from the, you know, the, the prior decade and, and for these companies to continue the level of success. Uh, I do wonder if that maybe isn't a way forward for them uh, as they evolve and, and uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, it always scares me a little bit when these companies that generate so much cash I mean, they've, they've certainly been buying back shares, especially in Apple's case. Um, you always wonder, though, if that causes a little bit of uh, uh, ill discipline on the capital allocation side, <laughs> what they want to do, what's the, are they going to be empire builders? Uh, you know, there's, there's a few open questions. So even though there are great businesses and valuations are, for the most part, not entirely stretched, there are some open questions out there for them. If you were going to question one of the, those companies' financial discipline, which one would it be the most? Well, it seems to be Google is the popular yeah. one there, you know, um, and it hasn't really, uh, it doesn't seem like it's it's been a, a real anchor around their neck, but I think a no, lot they've of- they've done all right. They've done all right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, you know, they could do better, that's for sure. Sure. So going back to Apple and for the record, I mean, I actually, I agree with you. It's actually one of, it's the only big tech company name I don't own. Um, but let me push back just a little bit. What would you say, like you're talking about 80% of their sales are in hardware, which is true, but what would you say like, like to the argument that like the hardware is how they push their software, which is the real, yes, like um, customers replace their phone every two to three years but rarely or a lot less rarely switch platforms from like, say iOS to Android. Uh, like I, like do you, do you see merit in that argument that like, it's really, it's more of a, it's a, like almost like a, a hardware is like their distribution for their software. Sure. No, I, I think that's true. The question is how much is that worth? And um, I, I guess, and I'm, I'm not a, a tech guy, so I'm a little bit out of my element here. You know, I primarily, you know, tobacco and airplanes and things like that. So take what I say about the sector with a, a grain of salt. But, you know, I, I look at it and I look at a company like Microsoft and I feel like that company should, is it's more reasonable trading the 30 times earnings versus Apple because of what they're doing with the cloud and so forth and and. I just think they're one of the premier businesses in the world. Apple's a great business too, but valuation wise, it's just hard for me to, to think that while your argument it does have a lot of merit, how much is it worth? Is it worth 30 times or 35 times or maybe more like 20 times? And I guess I would feel more comfortable with their current business mix. And, and, and given, like you said, the, the fact that a lot of these platforms, I mean, there are selling that that package, of course, and people are willing to pay a lot more for it than say for a competing hardware and, and so forth. But it seems awfully close to being priced for perfection. A lot of things have to go right for that to continue to be the case. And I guess the other question is maybe like, 
uh, well, how does this, how do I want to say this? If, if you look at Apple, was it mispriced for most of the past decade? Sure. You sure. know, why is it now worth 30 times earnings or whatever the current multiple is? I mean, uh, what has driven that for the most part? We know it hasn't really been from much organic growth. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you know, for much of the fi- last five years, you know, when aggregate revenues and profits really hadn't grown all that much, it's certainly not compared to the other big tech companies. So, you know, that I guess maybe that's my pushback to your pushback is what's 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 the <laughs> sure. right narrative? Was it was it mispriced for so long, or I, I guess that's just going to be the bull versus bear case for that stock? You know. Sure. No, it, it has had an incredible run since I guess Buffett, it almost seems like, uh, you know, Buffett timed it pretty well there. Yeah. Uh, like a few years ago, but it's had an incredible run since. There's no question about that. Yeah. Um, so you've brought up tobacco a few times um, and I know you invest in tobacco stocks. You, you tweet about the, uh, about the industry a lot. Like, what do you say to like people who object to uh, investing in tobacco stocks on the premise that, you know, it's not, it's not good for society. Well, I, I guess it really is a sort of how you define that. And I'm not trying to be, you know, flippant by any means, but, you know, we, we look at really the nicotine pool and it can be uh, combustibles. It can be oral nicotine. It can be uh, vaping and so forth. And that's really kind of what we're looking at here is and probably the future of the industry, not just cigarettes, although that's certainly been the most profitable for, for a century, really. Um, it, it really kind of depends on, on what, how each person frames this. So if you're not okay owning the company that manufactures cigarettes, for example, are you okay with owning a company that sells them as part of its business, like a Walmart or a C store or anything like that? Um, the companies really don't need your money. In fact, they give most of their profits back to investors. I think Altria, for example, returns 80% of their profits to investors via buybacks and dividends. So by not owning that, you're not really harming them. I mean, the theory is supposedly that by not owning these stocks, you're raising their cost of capital, but it's not like owning a bond where you're directly loaning the money. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, are we, by not owning them, are we really doing anything that productive? Uh, you could also take the, the proceeds from your investment and you could allocate it to uh, different groups or researchers or whatever that might you know, do something to combat the industry, for example. There's a lot of different ways that you could frame the argument. Uh, the way I put it with clients is they, they tell me what they want to exclude. For the most part, you know, most investors just are okay with whatever's going to make the money and help them achieve their goals. There are obviously a few people who are going to object to owning certain industries, and that's perfectly fine. We can, we can build around it. But I always just want people to think, how far do you take that argument? You know, um, why not do something else with the money that you get from these investments if they're helping you accomplish your your goals? Uh, there are a lot of things to like about the industry, um, you know, as they, they have high competitive advantages, the regulatory barriers really insulate them against competition. Uh, you know, they have ridiculously high profit margins because they don't have a lot of competition. 
Uh, as I said, you know, historically, I think it's been the best performing industry, you know, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, I, I, I guess each person has to answer that question for him or herself as far as can I, if I don't own these companies, will I be satisfied with perhaps a lower overall return in my portfolio? Can I make up for that somewhere else in the investment world by owning some other companies? I mean, they certainly haven't done very much the last couple of years. So people who refuse to own them haven't really missed out. But, you know, there are some unique characteristics that I think in a balanced portfolio, they provide some some positives in aggregate. So yeah, it's, it's not a, it's not a simple question to answer. Sure. Sure. So what would you, I mean, you, you touched, you touched on, they have very high margins. Let's take the moral part out of it. Uh, but for the investment case, I mean, you said they have high margins, um, you know, high dividend yield, no question about that. It's probably, you know, if you want a high dividend yield, that's well covered. It, it, you know, it might, it, it's hard to find a, another one that matches, uh, you know, the dividends that- Especially in this up. environment, yeah. Correct, correct. Yeah, for sure. But what would you say, like, if, uh, you know, people point out, like, the, it, it seems like, maybe I'm wrong here, the, I'm out of my element now, but, like, the uh, the global smoking population is declining. Like, what would you say to the future of the industry? Well, I, I think that you you kind of have to frame it again like a kind of a nicotine pool versus smoking. So a lot of the, uh, as I understand it, a lot of the uh, reduction in smoking, at least the last couple of years, was crossover chronic crossover category movement to say vaping or oral tobacco. Uh, I think there's still a demand for nicotine. There may not be for cigarettes. And Philip Morris International has has done a very good job of, of being ahead of the curve here. And they've developed their uh, heat not burn device, which is uh, you get your nicotine and all of the different things that people enjoy about smoking, the, you know, the habits and the oral fixation and so forth that people associate with smoking, the social aspects as well. But without a lot of the uh, the negatives from, you know, basically inhaling the smoke and so forth, the things that are carcinogenic, I guess, or poisonous for the, for the person. So I, I do think there's going to be a demand for uh, nicotine going forward. Um, I think, what is it? Uh, I think it's like a, a billion smokers in the world. So that's one out of seven. Granted, a lot of those are in China, which is a sort of a closed market for, for tobacco companies. It's uh, mostly from the state-owned uh, Chinese tobacco company there. But I think there's still a, a very large profit pool for nicotine consumption. And uh, just the fact that it's regulated and you've got a handful of players, um, that ice cube can take a long time to melt. And there's a lot of money to be made along the way. And you I mean, if you compare it to other industries that are still growing in aggregate, um, you know, whether it's automobiles or things like that, uh, where there's so much competition, those have really proven to be, for the most part, inferior investments, you know. Uh, I guess I would prefer to, was it Peter Lynch who talks about in an industry that that's, he prefers an industry that's growing slowly, only if he can't one that's, can't find one that's not growing at all, you right. know, because sure. that's where you'll sure. find your big winners. So right. uh, th that's my logic anyway. Sure. Yeah, makes sense. Uh Lawrence, where can people find you if they're interested in following you? 
They can find me on Twitter at uh, L Hamtel, L-H-A-M-T-I-L. They can uh, follow the blog at fortunefinancialadvisors.com. Uh, we try to blog a couple times a month, although I've been <laughs> not very good at doing that on a regular basis. My brain's been a little empty for a while, it seems like. So yeah, for the most part, if you're interested in uh, boring industries and you know, uh, deadlifts and squats and so forth. Feel free to follow me and uh, just watch an old man try not to kill himself sometimes at the gym. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm Matthew Cochran. We're Seven Investing, and we're here to empower you to invest in your future. Thanks, Matt. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.